If you would tonight, turn with me to the book of Romans. And uh, we have been looking at the book of Romans in Sunday school. And in in, uh, our Sunday school in the classes, uh, I've been teaching a series of lessons on God's glorious gospel. And uh, those lessons, they focus on, in the beginning of this book, the first three chapters, the people who need the gospel. The conclusion of who needs the gospel is found in verse number 23 of chapter number 3. Now, for those of you in Sunday school, I've already given it to you, but this is a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Who needs the gospel? Paul said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need the gospel. The gospel itself, we think about uh, that gospel. We've been looking at the the people that need the gospel. And of course, uh, in chapter number one, Paul talks about the heathen. Uh, You know, the heathen or uh, the the pagan idol worshipers, uh, they need the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. Then in chapter number two, uh, he talks about religious people. There are a lot of religious people, but religion will not save you. Ordinances will not save you. Ritual will not save you. The only thing that will save you is placing your life and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His blood and His death on the cross that we have salvation. Chapter number 3, Paul deals specifically with his own countrymen, the Jew. The Jews, they were religious people. The Jews, they were privileged people. Uh, the Jews, they thought because they had the law and uh, they had the ordinance of circumcision that surely they would be accepted by God. But come to find out, uh, Paul had already told told us some in chapter 2 about re- the religious people, that uh, they too were liars, that they too were thieves, they too were extortioners, they too had broken the commandments. Uh, we don't even have to think about the ten. Let's just take the last five and say we've broken most of those already. So people need the gospel. But what I want to focus on tonight more rather than the people of the gospel is the person of the gospel. The person of the gospel, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. People need the gospel. The gospel's powerful. I have never, I have never come across anything in my lifetime. I've never come across anyone in my lifetime that knew anything that was more powerful than the gospel. I have seen the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ transform lives completely. 
I have watched some what they were before they were saved and then what they became after they were saved. Uh, There is no comparison to what God can do with a life through the power of the gospel. It has the power, uh, it's the power of salvation. Uh, Paul said in verse 18 of chapter 1, it's that dynamite power. It's that power that just goes boom in your life and makes a change. It's a gospel that needs to be published. It's not only powerful, but the gospel needs to be published. And that's what we are doing. That's, that is our purpose as a church. It has been said that if a church is not participating in missions, if a church is not trying to reach their community, if a church is not going out beyond the walls of their sanctuary, then they have forfeited their right to be called a church. For that is uh, the, the, the work, if you will, the service of the church to publish the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts. We do that by preaching. We do that through testimony. Uh, we do that by passing out tracts. Uh, we do that through the internet. Uh, we do that through our vacation Bible schools. Uh, we started Friday Fly Day, inviting the community to come in. And what we do is we give them a, time, a game time for the kids of the community. Uh, and then uh, the gospel is shared with those who will come. And this is our purpose. This is our reason to exist. It's to publish the powerful and glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question comes down to, and like I said, this is where I want to focus uh, more tonight. Paul has already uh, told us that in verse number 1, that he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he is referring to there is that bond-slave covenant that he had made with God. In the Old Testament, in uh, the book of Exodus chapter number 21, verse number 5, if a man had to sell himself to a countryman, he owed a debt and he could not pay it. And in order to pay his debt, he would work that debt off. Uh, That is similar to what Jacob did when he worked seven years for Rachel. And of course, Jacob the supplanter, he got supplanted by his his, uh, soon-to-be father-in-law Laban. And he gave Jacob Leah instead and got seven more years of work out of him. But if a slave loved his master and did not want to be separated from his master, then the two of them would go down uh, at the seat of judgment uh, there in the town. And they would sit down with the judges and they would bore a hole in the ear of that slave and thereby signifying that he loved his master, he surrendered to his master, he wanted to serve his master. Paul said, this is the kind of relationship that I have with God. He said, I am a servant to the gospel. He said that he had surrendered. And that's exactly what I've just been talking about. Called to be an apostle. He surrendered to the gospel. There was a time in the book of Acts. Whenever they laid hands upon him and Barnabas. And they went out. And they began to spread the gospel. And share the gospel. Uh, he had been separated unto the gospel. Uh, he said uh, again. Uh, yes he was He was surrendered and he was separated for the sake of the gospel. 
Then he said, verse number 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now the question we have to ask is, who is he? When it says, which he had promised by his prophets. Uh, It is none other than God himself. For Paul said, verse number one, that he was separated unto the gospel of God. God is the one who had promised afore. God is the one who used the prophets. God is the one who gave the Holy Scripture so that we can know about the person of the gospel. And of course, that person, who is that person? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that Paul tells us about him is that he is the promised one. The whole revelation of God. Now, when Paul was writing this, uh, of course, they did not have the New Testament at the time, but they did have the Old Testament Scriptures. And as Paul was writing about those Holy Scriptures, uh, this is what he is referring to, what the Old Testament Scriptures had to say about the revelation of the Gospel of God. Now, we all need the Gospel. And the Gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, uh, a lot of times it was not really clear who the gospel is. In the Old Testament, uh, what it what it is, uh, it was uh, the Old Testament is an organic whole that reaches its climax in the birth, death, resurrection of. The Lord Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reaches its climax. The Old Testament reaches its climax. When the Son of God, God the Son, comes to earth. Gives His life on the cross. Is in the grave. He he arose again. His death, His burial, His resurrection. It is the climax. It is the pinnacle. It is the highest point and the highest peak. And all through the Old Testament, there had been promise after promise after promise of a Savior who was to come. The Jewish historian Alfred Erdschein, he estimated that there were some 572 Old Testament prophecies concerning the gospel of God. Which, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Over, I would say there's probably more than that. You know, you read the Word of God and the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And there are so many things that are there that are revealed to us. And we learn uh, over and over again. Uh, Alfred Erdsheim said 572. I wouldn't be surprised if there were many, many more than 572 references to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Psalms, over 33 prophecies of the Psalms were fulfilled at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about that Old Testament and what the Old Testament have to say. We find the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all the scriptures. As we look at the Bible and we look at each book and the significance that each book of the Bible has. 
And, and we go back and uh, we see in each book, we see the person of the gospel. He's in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, he was the Satan bruiser. In the book of Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the sacrifice for our sins. In Numbers, he was the serpent that was lifted up. For he said uh, unto Nicodemus, as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the, the book of Numbers, he is the serpent, the lifted one who is lifted up. In Deuteronomy, uh, he is the true and perfect prophet. In Joshua, the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our deliverer. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, first. Samuel, he is the king. In 2 Samuel, he is the one who will reign. In the book of Kings, he is the focal point of history. And we can go on throughout the Old Testament, book after book after book. In Ecclesiastes, he's the one who turns our vanity into joy. In the Song of Solomon, uh, he is uh, the one who will come, the king who will come and deliver us. In Isaiah, he's the redeem- our redeemer. In Jeremiah, he is the remnant. In Lamentation, uh, he had godly sorrow on the cross. But in Ezekiel, he had the final victory. And so, we realize that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this organic whole, uh, it's, it's alive and it's moving, it's working and it's powerful through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. He is the one who was promised afore by his prophets. For the in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, it seems as if everything was hidden, veiled in mystery. Or it might have been in types or metaphor. But when we come to the New Testament, uh, we find the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is clearly and completely revealed. For this Bible mystery, this Bible mystery in the New Testament, it's no longer a mystery. And this is what Paul is telling us here uh, to the church of Rome. He's writing this to us. He's letting us know in this time, in this generation, that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the gospel of God. He has been promised. This is no secret. It, there's a promise uh, we know who we're looking for. Uh, it was preached. It was prophesied. It was delivered through the Holy Scriptures. Uh, clearly revealed. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in verse number 2. We see the one who was promised. In verse number 3, we see the one who is the potentate. In verse number 3, this is what uh, Paul says concerning his son, Jesus Christ. He's telling his readers, those at the church of Rome, us who are reading it today, that all of this, the culmination, the sum total, if you were an accountant, an accountant at the end of his uh, tabulations will draw a double line which signifies that this is the final summation. Paul said the final summation is His Son, Jesus Christ. You look at the words there. Capital S-O-N. 
Capital J-E-S-U-S. Capital Christ. And he said, He is our Lord. He is the Son of God. But even more than that, He is God the Son. We had just uh, studied a lesson on the Trinity in, in our Bible college classes. And we think about, uh, we always think about Jesus was 100% man, yet 100% God. But have you ever considered that He was 100% God the Father, and 100% God the Son, and 100% God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father was 100% God the Father, and 100% God the Son, 100% Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit 100% the Son, 100% the Father. The all three are all 100% one of the other. There's no way to separate the others or set the others apart because who He is, the sum total, the, the greatest, the pinnacle, the highest peak, the mountain peak of all the New Testament rest in concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. For that word in the New Testament, Lord, uh, it is equivalent to that Old Testament word, Messiah. What Paul is telling his readers here, the ones who are reading this, he's saying to the Jew, you, you waited for the Messiah, you're looking for the Messiah, you're looking forward to the Messiah coming. He is here, He is here. We know the Messiah, we know who He is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Said he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So, he is the Son of God. He is the King of all glory. Yet, he also is the Son and out of the lineage of the family of David. Whenever Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Jews had typically taken uh, the 16th and the 110th Psalms. And they believed that those Psalms were speaking about David. That God was going to subdue all of the enemies of David. That God was going to allow David to sit down on the throne and reign. But when Peter began to preach this sermon, uh, he asked the question in chapter number 2. He said, if that Psalm If those Psalms, 16, he takes a verse from 16, a verse from 110, and he said, if those Psalms were talking about David, why did David say, the Lord, that is Jehovah, say to my Lord, Yahweh, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Peter said, he was not talking about David. He was not talking about the kingdom of David or the throne of David, but he was talking about a king that was to come that was going to fulfill the covenant that God made with David. And that covenant was that you would have a throne and a kingdom and a rule forever and ever. He is talking about none other than the Son of the living God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is who He is. For He is that one who is the potentate, the messianic line. That messianic line that went from Adam 
And then from Adam uh, through Seth and Seth uh, through Enosh and Canaan and uh, through all the generations uh, as it come through the lineage to Noah and then to Shem. Uh, the, that godly line, uh, that messianic line uh, lineage as it continued on through uh, Obed and Jesse and it went to uh, David, and then from David going forward, and we think about that messianic line, it had its culmination and its completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where He is the end and the completion of the lineage of David. And the line of the Messiah is fulfilled and culminated. It stops with Him. I think about it and when I, when I, 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 I'm thinking about a, a, a mogul who lived here in Atlanta for many years, uh, kind of put Atlanta on the map. The man's crazy, but he did some things that, you know, uh, were good for Atlanta. One thing is he put the Atlanta Braves on the superstation. You're going to get an amen right there. Uh, he put the Braves on the superstation. Uh, but you know who I'm talking about, Ted Turner. Uh, Ted Turner had a couple of sayings uh, that I like. Uh, I don't necessarily like him, but a couple of sayings that he had that I like. Uh, one, he said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. We could solve a lot of problems if people quit, started quit, started leading from the back and just got out of our way and we could get the job done. So he said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. But he also had a plaque on his desk, and it said, the buck stops here. He wasn't the first one to say that. But he did have a plaque, and it said, the buck stops here. In other words, you want the final decision? You want to know what the end is? Come to me, I'll tell you. Well, here in the Bible is where the messianic line came to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one through generation after generation, go back 4,000 years, cover 60 generations in the Old Testament. And what you find at the end of that generation from Adam, and you trace it all the way forward, go to uh, the book of Luke chapter number 3, and trace the lineage. And there, if you'll trace that lineage backwards, it begins at Jesus and goes all the way back to God. You trace that lineage back to when God created Adam. And where that lineage stops and finds its completion and finds its end is here in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In Revelation chapter number 22, uh, Jesus, uh, He said, I am the root and the offspring of David. He's, what that means is, I was alive, I was in existence long before David ever existed. You notice how He began that phrase in that verse. He said, I am. 
When God could not describe Himself as anything else or anyone else, or not could not define Himself uh, in time, He just simply said, I am, I am God, I've always been God, I'm God now, I'll be God tomorrow, I'll be God next week, I'll be God next year, a millennia from now, an eternity from now, He is still God, and that's who He is. The Lord Jesus Christ, He was the Lord of lords and King of kings, long Long before David ever was. He was there when God in His creative counsels began to frame the worlds. He was there in Genesis 1.1. He was there uh, whenever uh, the prophets came and began to prophesy of Him. And of course, He was there when a virgin girl... uh, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon a virgin girl and in her was conceived uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, through 4,000 years and 60 generations, it's the final end. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. The prophets promised He was coming. Now I know between... The Old Testament and New Testament, Malachi to Matthew, there was 400 years God was quiet. But oh, what a message God had when He opened up that book of Matthew. And here He is. He is that that potentate. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice in verse number 4 that He is the powerful one and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, potentate of potentate. What's going to happen one day? You know, uh, people today, they don't recognize that, right? They don't recognize uh, Jesus as the Son of God. There are some who really don't even recognize that He ever lived. There are some who would say that He was a great man. There are some who would say that He was a prophet. As a matter of fact, there are religions today that would say that the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, He was a prophet But that's all he ever was. But what's going to happen, according to John, in the book of the Revelation, he is going to be revealed once and for all for who he is. Every eye is going to see him. And not only will every eye see Him, but every knee is going to bow. And every enemy is going to be defeated. And when He returns with the armies of heaven, as He's riding on that white charger, and on His thighs a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, His vesture dipped in blood, and behind Him are the armies of heaven coming back with Him, everyone on a white horse, uh, that white horse, signifies authority. That white horse signifies position. That white horse signifies 
power. So every one of us who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are heirs and joint heirs with the Son of God, the all-powerful potentate of heaven, uh, the one who is reigning, the one who is promised, the one who is powerful. We're going to come back with Him and we're going to share in that power and glory and honor. Therefore, we all come back victorious with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are three expressions that are mentioned here. He said, declared to be the Son of God, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The expression, Spirit of holiness, it lets us know that He lived a life that was a holy life here on earth. He is the Son of God, but He is the Son of Man. The Bible says He was in all ways tempted as we are, we are yet without sin. Now, for those who believe in the uh, peccability or impeccability of the Savior, let me just say this. Why tempt someone with something that they cannot fall under? I believe that Jesus could have sinned, but He did not sin. If He couldn't be tempted with pride, then why did Satan tempt Him with the kingdoms of this world? If he couldn't be tempted to act independently of his father, why did Satan ask him to turn the the stones into bread? Why did Satan say, put yourself up on the pinnacle and tempt God, uh, just jump off and the angels will catch you? I know it doesn't say that exactly, but you know what what it says. That's my Georgia redneck version, okay? That's... That's, that's when, when I was pastoring uh, the teenagers, uh, they said they liked me because I professed to be a redneck. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he, this spirit of holiness speaks about a life that was victorious over sin. He was tempted. He was tempted by Satan. There was temptations uh, that he faced as a man. Yet he was holy. He was sinless. He was perfect. He did not sin. He is. This speaks about his victory. The victorious life that he has over the power of sin. There's only been one person on earth that's ever kept all ten of the commandments. Only one. His name is Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept them all. Uh, Did that give him his power? No, his power didn't come from keeping the commandments. His power came from his heavenly Father and the movement of the Holy Spirit within him. It was by that power, and we're going to look at that a little bit more here in a moment, by that power uh, that he was resurrected from the dead. For he lived a life that was victorious. And he will give us a victorious life. We do not have to live here in this life in defeat. We do not have to live under oppression. For we have been delivered 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we can sing victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and He bought me and He gave me life eternal. He gave me the victory. Paul says later on in this 8th chapter that we are more than conquerors. It's like a, a contest uh, between, between two gladiators or two wrestlers uh, when in fact it was not a contest at all. One gladiator, one wrestler just wiped up the floor with the other. Uh, there was no real contest to it at all. Complete and total victory was given. And so for us, we have complete and total victory because Jesus is victorious. We are victorious where the Bible says declared uh, to be according to the flesh declared to be the son of God it's that spirit of holiness that spirit of holiness that is uh, about him that makes him victorious then that expression the, the next expression that we look at is the resurrection from the dead. He has victory over the power of sin. But in that resurrection from the dead, there now we see that he has, in the resurrection of the dead, he has victory over the penalty of sin. The penalty... For sinning is death. Isn't that what God told Adam? He told Adam and Eve, Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You look in chapter number 5 in the book of Genesis. It is the funeral chapter. And you read over and over again, They lived they died. They lived. They died. They lived. They died. They lived. They died. Even Methuselah, the oldest man that we know of that ever lived, uh, almost a thousand years old. What did the Bible say about him? And he died. There's only one, the Bible didn't say uh, that he died, and that was Enoch. And he is a type of those who will be raptured away and caught up in the rapture. Well, here, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, He gives us the victory. He has gotten victory, has gotten victory over death, over hell, over the grave. Therefore, Paul can write in uh, Corinthians chapter number 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, grave, where's thy victory? Oh, death, where's thy sting? For the the power of the grave is the sting of death. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, on the third day, the grave could not hold Him. For the Bible uh, tells us that uh, from that grave He arose on Sunday morning when they came to look for Him there in the tomb and finish the burial process and the mummification of His body. When they arrived there, the angel said, He is not here. He is risen. He is risen in power. He is risen in glory. He is risen with authority. He is that risen Savior who has victory over death, 
over hell and over the grave. You remember a few moments, moments ago, I told you, told you, I told you, I really did, I told you so. I told you, you try this. <laughs> you think this is easy? I get scared to death when I come up here every time. But I mentioned a few moments ago that we are heirs and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that He is going to share with us, part of our inheritance as a child of God, is that we as the children of God, the grave will not hold us. But there's coming a day, there's coming a time. I, I think about it, I'm, I'm like uh, Brother Don Roy. The older I get, it seems like the more it's coming to mind. Uh, I think to myself, I would love to be at the graveyard whenever the rapture takes place. And just stand there, and it may happen too fast to see it. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I'll see the graves open. And I'll see the saints of God who will be resurrected from the dead. I see them as they're in their glorified bodies. I see them changed from this vile body into an immortal, glorious body uh, like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a victory that He's going to give us. We may go by the grave or we may, like Enoch, be translated. But one day we are going to be raptured. We're going to be changed. We're going to change this mortality for immortality. We're going to change these earthly temporal things for heavenly eternal things. We're going to exchange uh, this body that's trapped within this capsule of time for a body that is eternal and timeless. We're going to exchange this body that's growing older and older and older. And I love that old song that was written in a land where we'll Never grow old. Never grow old. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that the power of His resurrection. Then this expression says declared to be the Son of God. It tells us of His, the power of of His endless life. I've already been preaching some about that. You see the Lord Jesus Christ, these three verses, Paul gives us a little glimpse of the person of the gospel. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was promised, or we would say prophesied, that He would come. And we know that He is the Son of God because He is that holy and great King of glory, the potentate of heaven. And this authority has been signified. It's like the the stamp of approval is His resurrection. How do we know that Buddha was not God? How do we know that Allah or Muhammad are not God. Because we can go to their graves and their bones are still there in their grave. Reminds me of uh, 
a Hindu holy man that I had a privilege of meeting years ago in India, and he said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And he was not kidding when he said it. He convinced many, many, many people that he was Jesus Christ. And he said, I will prove it when I die and rise again on the third day. We're still waiting over ten years later. He was not the Son of God. How do we know that this man from Nazareth, the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, how do we know he is whom he said he is, the Son of God, God the Son? Because he arose with power from the grave. Proof positive that he is the Son of God. For this is our message. And this is the gospel. And we publish and tell about this powerful gospel and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Let's pray.